Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose, and joining me on today's episode is a friend of the show, Terry Ryder. Uh, for people who've been listening to the show, you will have heard Terry a few times before. He's been a, a relatively regular guest on the show, and every episode we've ever done with him has been insightful, impactful, and memorable. And I'm sure you're going to find that this one is exactly the same albeit covering some different ground. So in today's episode, we talk about all kinds of things. So like, what is what are the current trends shaping the Australian property landscape? Do interest rates really drive growth? Is the current boom in the capital sustainable? What about the trend to regionals? Is that sustainable? What actually drives those? How can you try and codify things like lifestyle as a factor of growth? And so, so much more. So if you are an investor of any type, shape, age, form, whatever, and you're thinking about buying real estate, or if you're trying to just understand what is happening currently in the market and try and make sense of it, you're going to love this episode. So without any further ado, let us get stuck right into it. I can't wait to share this episode with you and I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. And joining me today is a regular guest of the show. He's the only guy, only guest that we've had on the show this many times. He is the font of knowledge, the vanguard of truth, a titan of industry, and an expert commentator with over 30 years' exposure to the property market. And he's also a personal mentor and advisor, Terry Ryder. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. Uh, look, it's always great to be here, Goose. We get to talk about real estate, my favourite subject. Indeed. Or, in- or one of them. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, mate, before we kick things off, how are you? How's life? How's, how are things on your side of the, the life, business, property spectrum? I can't imagine how it could be better um, at a personal level and also at a business level. You know, 12 months ago, April 2020 was what I call the panic month. Everybody was panicking. We had clients who are regular subscribers panicking, wanting to cancel because they thought the world was ending. Um, yeah. At that time, we asked the question, where's the opportunity in all this? And mm. um, 12 months later, we're thriving. Um, the goal was to double the income of the business, um, and we've achieved that. And so I'm really, really happy with that. Awesome. Congratulations. And I've got to say, though, you know, you wouldn't be able to double the the revenue and size of the business if if it wasn't on quality, like if it wasn't based on quality. And I think um, you would be recognizing this, but I think more broadly, the industry has recognized that as far as, you know, in, a, in an industry that is full of noise, nonsense, hubris, and just a lot of trash, garbage, and media hype, um, the stuff that particularly I would say over the last 12 to 18 months that you have been putting out and the commentary that you've been providing has been able to cut through the noise and get to the heart of things. And I think in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of conflicting ideas, it's refreshing to, yeah. to, be, able to be able to actually have a reliable source of information, which I think has contributed to why um, your stature and profile in business has obviously grown over the last 12 months as well. So. Yeah, I think people basically want to know what's really going on because they're not getting that from mainstream media. They're, they're totally. getting mis- misinformation and white noise and static. I want to know what's really going on. So we try to... Um, to fill that gap in the information cycle. And um, there's not many people out there doing it. No, exactly right. Which is why I enjoy having you on this show. And obviously, um, you know, we we catch up regularly outside of being uh, you being a guest on the show. And that's been a really great uh, sounding board for us as a business and everything like that. But what I want to get into today is I want to really try and tackle a lot of the things that are happening in the current market. Because I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for people to make significant gains. There's a lot of opportunity for people to make some significant mistakes. And I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there at the moment, which is kind of causing a lot of people to to be very confused, you know? And so what 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 do you think of the current trends that are shaping the the, the property landscape at the moment? Look, I think they're really powerful and, and there's multiple trends um, feeding into the situation we have, which is a genuine nationwide property boom, the like of which we haven't seen for 20 years. Uh, it's substantial, it's real, it's got substance and it's got longevity. And there are, I think, you know, my, my list of reasons why we're in this uh, market has got 15 different dot points and um 
when you go through it and understand all the different factors that are feeding into this, you understand that this is not a flash in the pan. It's not going to suddenly end with a an interest rate rise, for example. It's 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 going to roll on because it's underpinned by real things. Yeah, I want to I want to ask about that. So there's a there's interesting you said a national property boom. I want to dig into that a little bit because I think that. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to make some mistakes because they think that oh, all prices are going to rise, so it's hey, all properties are going to go up, and then you know that you can basically throw a dart anywhere in Australia and just buy wherever the dart hits the map, and off you go. I think that's a real risk for people. But I want to touch on something you just mentioned there. You said there's 15 different reasons that you've identified that this is a national property boom and it's got sub substance and longevity and all of that kind of stuff. What role do interest rates play? Because a lot of people are thinking that the only reason that uh, investors or that, that people are rushing back into the market is because of interest rates. And to a degree, that must be found to be true because uh, in real terms, housing affordability has never been better. Because as, uh, you know, even though prices are rising, you know, if we look at if we look at Melbourne and Sydney more broadly, their prices actually haven't really risen over the last few years. They're only just starting to rise, you know, now off their 2017 peaks. But in real terms, the actual cost of holding and 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 paying down the mortgage for homeowners specifically is what I'm referring to. Yeah. You know, home affordability has never been. Is at an all-time high, and so you can kind of imply from that that a huge thrust of what is driving the market is through home ownership and housing affordability, and that must come down to interest rates. So, what role do interest rates play, and and is you know is that not why the market is booming, or not a big massive contributor? No, it's not really. Um, Interesting, and and I understand that that people might believe that because media tells them that every day. Economists are saying it every day because that's all they got. Your standard economist doesn't get residential real estate. They don't really understand it, but they do pontificate about it every day in the media. And, you know, when they're asked why we have this nationwide property boom, they'll say, oh, record low interest rates. Well, I just think that's infantile. You know, we've had record low interest rates for years in this country. Not much has changed recently um, to explain why the market has changed so dramatically. Um, when Sydney and Melbourne were having their booms um, from 2013 to 2017, whenever an economist was asked, why is it happening? They said record low interest rates. And my question was, well, hang on a minute. It's the same level of record low interest rates everywhere in the country, but Perth and Darwin are falling. You know, their market fell for six years during this period of record low interest rates. Um, Brisbane, Adelaide, Canberra, they weren't falling, but they weren't rising either. They were just chugging along. How come this impact of record low interest rate only applies to Sydney and Melbourne? And they didn't have an answer for that. And the answer was, well, it's not about the level of interest rates. It's about other more powerful forces. Um, so the cost of finance, the low cost of finance, is on my list of 15 dot points, but it's not the central reason. Um, what is the central reason? Or like, obviously, out of we don't have to go through all 15, right? But of the 15, there are going to be some that are going to be aggregate weighted to be more impactful than others. And I know you've been a big proponent of the exodus to affordable lifestyle and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that's a feature. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, but I, I mean, I'm you know I don't want to uh, censor too much on that because I think a lot of people understand intrinsically people have been moving to lifestyle locations. And we can kind of dig into that a little bit. But what are some of the like maybe less understood ones that you think are actually having a bigger impact? Look, I think real estate markets essentially arise out of what's going on in an economy. And usually real estate markets are local. It's very rare that we have the situation we have now where it seems like everywhere is rising. Usually it's it's very local what's happening with markets. Some will be rising, some will be stagnating, some will be falling. Um, so economic factors are huge. And the, the reality is that we were told to expect a long, deep recession with really high unemployment, unemployment in double digits. And that didn't happen. The Australian economy has proved incredibly resilient. It's come roaring back out of that very short, sharp, um, deliberately induced uh, recession. And people are feeling very confident because unemployment has is, is actually never went as high as it was, it was supposed to, and it's falling quite rapidly. The economy is growing strongly, um, and that feeds into the confidence. Um, there's a lot of government stimulus out there, um, federal stimulus, state stimulus, tax cuts are fed into the system. Um, we've got expats coming back in large numbers and they've 
more than compensated for the lack of overseas migrants coming into the country. Um, there, there was pent-up demand. Um, the fact that vacancies in most parts of Australia are ultra, ultra low, and that's pushing up rents, and that feeds into prices as well. Um, one of the big ones for me is the infrastructure spend. You know, it's very clear that state and federal governments see um, the fast-tracking of big infrastructure projects as a way of generating economic recovery, and, and that's become a priority uh, for federal and state governments, and that's enormously influential mm. for residential property. It's one of the reasons why I think this thing will have longevity because these projects are going to roll out over multiple years. Mm. You know, when you're talking about, like, Brisbane's Cross River Rail, $5.5 billion project, that's, that's not going to be done in a year. That's going to extend for multiple years. The Inland Rail Link, which currently is the biggest infrastructure project in the country, $13 billion, it's under construction, but it's going to be a construction project for the next two or three years. So these things are going to keep feeding the economy and pumping up property markets. And um, those are just some of the reasons. Okay, um, so I've got, got a few things I want to pick on there, not pick, like pick out, not pick on. Um, so... The inland rail link—that's a really interesting project. It's thirteen odd billion dollars worth of uh, of spend, and so that's awesome. But it's also spread out across thousands of kilometers and hundreds of towns. So, how can you aggregate the economic impact of a project like that? Because you know the cross the cross river rail in Brisbane—you're like, okay, that's in a spot, and the money's going to go into that spot. But for example, in the the inland rail, you know, that's going through. You know, dozens and hundreds, you know, maybe not hundreds, but dozens and dozens and dozens of towns. Yeah. And so, is it that each one of those towns is going to get a sprinkling of economic impact for a short period of time when the workers happen to be stationed there when they're building that section of the rail link? Or how do you think that specific project is going to have uh, impact over the long term? Look, it, along the route of that project, there are, are specific uh, pivot points where transport hubs are going to be created. So it's not just the rail link comes through the town. In certain places, um, there's going to be a specific transport hub created where the train will stop and things will be offloaded and put onto trucks, um, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so parks in New South Wales is one of the pivot points. Uh, and parks is already getting enormous uplift from that. And the point about that is that it's not just the construction of it. The, the impact is going to be ongoing after it's up and running. Mm. A place like Parks, you know, because it's one of the pivot points, because it's got a transport hub built around the Inran Lower, it's going to get ongoing economic benefit. Um, so just, 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 just using Parks as an example, right? So we looked at Parks a while ago and we we ascertained that the from an economic size perspective, basically it's a small town, right? It's, I don't think yeah. you can argue that it's a small town, that on that basis, um, it presented potentially too much exposure risk or too much sensitivity risk uh, to invest in. How do you, like you've said, property prices are going up there and yes, the economy is good and stuff. Is there is there a size of town where you would say it's too small to invest in or do you just assess it on basically economic impact? Look, we, we generally have a bit of a rule of thumb about um, the size of a place. And normally we wouldn't recommend a place as small as parks because, you know, what we're looking for is diversity in the economy, strength and yeah. diversity. And and parks would not normally tick enough boxes, but sometimes yeah. you make an exception because of exceptional circumstances. And I think parks is a case in point because it's not just a town that, you know, is a centre for an agricultural community. Um, it's also got the big, uh, the, you know, the dish, and that's another part of its economy ongoing. But it's also, um, it's been a, a transport hub for a while. Um, so it's got, you know, a few different elements to it. And, and this inland rail link is just another game changer that's come along. So we we would probably say in the context of a broader portfolio, you, you can take a risk with a place like Parks because I think there's a fair degree of certainty that ongoing it's going to be a good performer. And certainly in the last 12 months, you know, it's median prices up 12%. Um, you know, it used to be houses were around two hundred thousand. Now they're around three hundred thousand, but the rental yields are still five or six percent. So it's you know it's a pretty good bet. I wouldn't recommend to someone starting out that they make their first purchase parks because you're right, there is that extra element of risk because it's a smallish town. So but, let's talk. Let's talk about risk then. Uh, it's an interesting one that was I wasn't expecting us to get to. But how do you assess like portfolio risk? Someone you've got a lot of experience. You've seen a lot of portfolios. You've got a portfolio yourself, etc. 
So how do you assess portfolio risk? Like at what point might someone, just in a general terms, might someone uh, take a bet on a place like Parks? Is it when they've got, you know, four other properties or two? Or, or And how would you like... Is there a yeah. is there a process by which you would go? Okay, the first three need to be really low risk, and therefore the characteristics would be there must be in capital cities or whatever. I'm just making stuff up. Like, how do you assess risk in that sense, and how do you know when to when to when to place bets? Yeah, you know, it's just a horses for courses thing. Always, you know, the answer depends on the individual. But as a rule of thumb, I'd say someone's got five or six properties in their portfolio, and they're kind of vanilla. They're all sort of you know your standard safe. Just good, solid, generic um, locations that tick all the boxes. Then you can start being a little bit more adventurous. You know, risk and return. You you might take something a little bit riskier and get a better return. You might take on something where you're gonna um, you can subdivide and do a bit of a small development, and that's got risk to it. You know, if you stuff it up, you could you could lose money. But once you've got five or six properties. Are bettered away and they're producing positive cash flow, and you're very solid. Then you can start taking on something like a parks, where because of the size of the economy and the location, it's a little bit riskier. There's another one I'd like to talk about a little bit later in Queensland um, that um, is also relevant to the discussion. It's a great case point where, yeah, I'd make an exception for that location because of XYZ reasons. Is that Warwick? It is Warwick. Well, well, well picked. Yeah, I think it's a great example of, of, of something that people can target right now. Because right now the problem for people is everywhere is frenetic. It seems where can you go and buy sensibly? The mm. prices aren't changing daily, and you're not competing with thousands of others for a property. Um, and but it's got growth prospects, and I think yeah. Warwick, Warwick ticks a lot of boxes in that yeah, regard. It's, it's fascinating because um, we have a, an extensive data analysis process and algorithms and all of this kind of stuff, and we spend a lot of time looking at charts and graphs and whatnot. And Warwick actually came up in our spectrum probably three months ago, I would say, um, yeah. and we've been looking at it ever since and going, hmm, it's pretty small. Like, is that is it going to like? How can we like? There's definitely a lot of opportunity there. However, the economic profile is relatively small, but there's some significant growth drivers yeah, in the area. Yeah. So it's about weighing up those risk, the risk reward profile. Yeah. And sometimes the size of the town doesn't matter if it's got a strong link to somewhere that's bigger and more, more powerful. And I would suggest that uh, Warwick, because of its relationship and proximity to Toowoomba, can overcome some of the, the reality that it's only a town of ten or 12,000 people. It's got its own reasons it was interesting only yesterday there was the announcement that the state government had approved a 1.9 billion dollar alternative energy project um, which is located just outside Warwick very significant project amongst other things that are happening there so that's it's got its own reasons for growth but it's 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 its relationship with Toowoomba that makes us Okay, put aside the fact that it's a smallish place. Another example would be Gympie, which is a town I like a lot. Um, it's a little bit bigger than Warwick, but you might not normally consider uh, Gympie as, as a prime target, but because of its relationship with the Sunshine Coast, which is one of the most powerful um, growth economies in the country, uh, its proximity to, its links to the Sunshine Coast, and the fact that it's an affordable lifestyle alternative to it, Means that Gimpy can can overcome some of the objections you might have about it. Mm. The problem with Gimpy is it's a little late. If you're trying to get into yeah. Gimpy now, you're too late. Yeah. Yes, hot, that's right. Hot, hot tip: If you're looking at this episode, look at Gimpy. You're too late. Too late. It's a little yeah. bit hit And we, we were talking about say two years ago, and that was a great time to get into Gimpy. Yeah. Uh, but Warwick, it's I, I believe Warwick. It's not too late. It's actually, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think Warwick's right in the early phases of it. I think I think it's a good one. I agree with yeah. you on that one. So sure. Nice. Um. I'm interested to know about um, your views on macro prudential regulation. And I'm going to frame the question up in a little bit of a different way. We, and I want to dig into booming markets and all of that kind of stuff. But with everything that's going on and your 15 points that identify uh, why it's growing and, and all of that kind of stuff, all we need to do is look over the pond at New Zealand and see that their 
property prices got a little carried away and they started to accelerate too fast. And as a result, there's been some macro prudential regulation over there that stymied a lot of uh, investors, have increased LVR or decreased LVRs. They've done all this kind of stuff, right? What do you think is the risk um, of similar things happening in Australia? Or how do you think that a, the Australian uh, situation may be different from the New Zealand situation? And subsequently, what macro prudential regulation do you think may or may not come into play to manage a booming market, if anything at all? Yeah. Um, look, at this stage, I don't think there's any great risk of that happening. The, the main uh, regulatory bodies that have a say in this thing, specifically APRA and the Reserve Bank, have made it clear that at this point, anyway, they're not concerned about what's happening. And let's keep in mind, and it's, it's sometimes hard to be cognizant of this because of the way media behaves, but there are actually a lot of benefits for the nation and for the people of the nation and, and a property boom that we're currently happening. Um, it's, it's, I think it's great for the nation. It's great for the economy. Um, and it's also great for individuals. And it's also, it feeds into the desire of this nation to have as many people as possible funding their own retirement and not being dependent on government support. That's, it's been a long-term objective of successive federal governments and the fact that asset values are rising is is good for that, but it's also good for confidence. You know, when somebody sells a home and someone else buys it, generally two households move. And when that happens, we've got business circulating throughout the community, and it's really good. You know, so many different professions get a slice of that action, and it's so it creates economic activity and that creates jobs, so it's good. It's a good thing. Um, media tends to portray it as a crisis because they start um, banging on about, oh, no one can afford to buy anymore, which is rubbish, of course, but that's what they say. Um, and I think some politicians, you know, they've been grilling the CEOs of the big banks in the last couple of weeks and parliamentary committees, and, and, and they say, look, we're very relaxed about it. The, the only concern that APRA might have and, and others might have is if lending standards get lacks mm. uh, and that's when a regular later might step in but the reserve banks made it very clear it's not our it's not our role to regulate the property market it's not our role to be concerned that prices are rising all we care about is that the economic fundamentals are sound and that the lending standards are solid and that's also APRA's concern so at this stage they're not taking action um, now the reserve bank has also made it clear that they, they don't intend they don't foresee lifting the official interest rates for the next um, two or three years. Now, if they change their mind for some reason, what history shows us is that an interest rate rise isn't going to change anything. It's not going to stop the runaway train. Um, there will have to be four, five or six interest rate rises in rapid succession before they halt the momentum. We've seen that from, you know, I've got a, a chart here in my office where it, it shows property prices and changes in interest rates. It takes multiple interest rates cuts to have an influence on property market in a positive sense. And when you're talking about slowing down a boom market, what history tells us is you, ne you need five or six interest rate rises before it, it halts the momentum. We saw that in the late 80s when interest rates had to hit 17% before the boom stopped. Uh, and in the uh, 20 years ago, when we had the last national property boom, interest rates were sort of seven, seven and a half percent, and they were rising and the boom kept rolling on. Um, mm. We had to have multiple rises and other things happening before the boom stopped. Interesting, interesting insights. So let's just fast forward a few years. Let's say people are like, yeah, let's go and buy some properties now. And they're buying, they're buying properties that are cash flow positive on the basis of low interest rates and all of this kind of stuff, how might how might uh, investors or investment strategies be affected when interest rates go up? I think the obvious one is as interest rates go up, cash flow goes down. So more specifically, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is how should investors be thinking in this market in order to set themselves up for, let's say, five years down the line, and let's just say interest rates do start to rise in two to three years, and they go up uh, incrementally over over a couple of years, and they start to go back up to like five, six, seven percent. 
how should investors be thinking about their investment strategy now on that basis? Because I think a lot of the mistakes that a lot of people are making is they think short-term when they should be thinking long-term. Well, I mean, one thing they could consider is um, locking in the interest rates, um, mm. fixing the interest rates, because, I mean, one thing we know for sure, they're not going to go any lower. They can't go any lower. The official interest rates, um, the next step down is zero, and that's not going to happen. So... Um, why not um, fix your interest rates for you know a period of time? See, so you know that um, what your interest rates going to be for the next three or four or five years. Um, that's one thing you could con- consider. Um, another is that like if you're buying now and you're say borrowing at two percent ish, and you've got a, you're bought in a good regional centre and you're getting a five percent uh, rental return, so you've got probably. Positive cash flow situation. Three years from now, interest rates might go up, but your rent will have gone up by now, um, by more uh, in the intervening period. Because we have this situation where, except for inner Sydney, inner Melbourne, inner Brisbane, vacancy rates are incredibly low everywhere. This is there's a short, it's a crisis. There's a shortage pretty much everywhere, and there's great impetus for rents to rise, um, and people are experiencing that right now. Rents are rising in many places faster than prices are, and that's unusual. So three years from now when we might have some interest rate rises, um, you know, the the gap between the current interest rate they're paying and the rental yield they're getting will have increased. So there's a compensating factor built in there. So I think if people think in those terms, um, they should be comfortable. And bear in mind also that, the, the bank that gives them a loan right now, they're not, they're not going to assess them at 2%. They'll assess them at 4 or 5%. Mm. And, and so they've already been assessed as being able to accommodate future interest rate rises. Otherwise, they wouldn't get the loan. Yep. Okay, fair enough. Now, there's a lot of talk at the moment around capital city prices booming. Yeah. So my first point on that is, A, is it true? Uh, B, what commentary do you have on the the fact that property prices in in the capital, so in specifically Sydney and Melbourne, haven't actually risen in in real terms for the last four years, or barely uh, have risen risen in real terms in the last four years? And is it sustainable? Is this kind of like sharp uptick in prices in Sydney and Melbourne? Is it sustainable, or is it a sugar high? based on pent-up owner-occupier demand from people having more discretionary spending or savings from COVID and stuff? And is it going to just be a short-term bubble? Look, I think not short-term. I think, um, again, I'll go back to my list of reasons, um, and they're substantial. I think, um, you know, Sydney and Melbourne can can sustain um, much higher property prices than other parts of Australia because there's just so much wealth centred in those two cities, uh, and that continues to be the case. Um, One factor feeding into it is the return of expats. Another factor that's going to come over the top of that at some point is that the borders will reopen and we're going to have an influx of overseas migrants again. Now, that's completely out of the equation right now. Um, So that factor is actually another reason why I believe this thing has longevity is because that's not an impact at the moment, but it will be um, once you know the world gets vaccinated and things start to get back to normal. Gradually, that will happen. At some point, the international border will reopen, and I think we're going to have a, a very major influx because it's been you know the, the dam has been stopped, uh, the, the flow has been stopped for now. But um, there's going to be a lot of pent up demand there coming into the market, and that's going to feed particularly into Sydney and Melbourne. So I think. Um, that's a couple of reasons why I think um, their price escalation um, will have some longevity about it. Interesting. Interesting. To that degree, then, um, I think a lot of people are very aware now of the, you know, the exodus to the regions. Um, you know that you know a lot of people believe that a lot of these trends right now are based on COVID influence. You know, people moving for lifestyle decisions. You know, people's desires in lifestyle. Uh, change, you know, over time. So, for example, yeah. you know, I could have, you know, we could have moved somewhere for the up the coast for a year and gone. That was nice, but actually, we love being back in Sydney. So let's move back to Sydney. And so, some of these kind of lifestyle decisions 
can change as the as the environment changes. So just in the same way that an event like COVID caused people to reconsider where they were living and what they wanted, um, people can then you know move somewhere and go, hey, I've had enough of that now. I want to move back and things like that. So one of the questions I keep getting asked is, you know, we we're currently investing in major regional centers, right? And that's where mm. we're where it's where our focus is. And the reason we're in those areas is because of the economic profile and you know you know, the various metrics in the in the market that make it exciting for us to invest there. But a lot of questions I keep getting asked is, is it sustainable? Is this going to be a short-term trend or a long-term trend? Is this something that is going to be the trend for the next six months? Is it already receding, perhaps? Are people starting to move back to the city? Or is this going to be a, a change, a, like a fundamental change in the the landscape of Australia where people have shifted their values and are going to sustain these regional centre um, uh, economic strengths? I would say the latter, yes. I think it's long-term and sustainable. It's actually been going on for a long time. And more media misinformation, I've characterised this trend as being a, a, a response to the pandemic, and it's not. It's been going on for years. Uh, it's just that it's picked up momentum and received more media attention in the last 12 months. But Sydney has been losing population to internal migration for 12, oh, sorry, 10 years. And Melbourne has been losing population to internal migration, which is people moving to other parts of the country for the last three to four years. Um, and it's picked up pace. It's not about the pandemic. Um, it's, it's fundamentally about technology. Um, you know, a lot of people are in the big cities because they feel they have to be there for their for their work, for their careers, having made the realisation, hey, we don't need to be anymore because we can actually work effectively remotely, then they, they start the question, well, do we need to be in the big congested expensive city? And if the answer is no, then they'll make that move and more and more people are making that choice. And um, I don't see the trend as reversing because um, they're moving to places primarily which... Um, you know, a, a very strong places in their own right. You know, it's we know that Sydney and Melbourne are the, the biggest, wealthiest cities in the country, but there's plenty of places out there that have very, very strong local economies. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the Ballarats and Bendigo's, you know, that there's plenty to sustain people in their lives, um, their lifestyles, their careers, their, their businesses in those places. They don't need to be in the big city anymore, but they've, they're well linked to it if they need to go there. Um, uh, where I am um, in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, an hour from the CBD of Brisbane, 30 minutes from the beach, gorgeous town, beautiful country, strong sense of community. There are good schools, wonderful arts and crafts, the music scene. You don't sacrifice anything lifestyle while being here. There's no need to be in the city for people like me. Um, you can get a park in the main street. Uh, there's no traffic lights. Um, you know, it's priceless. And for a lot of people, that, that's, that's the dream. I remember Bernard Salt, the, um, the most renowned demographer in Australia, um, he's written a number of books on these subjects, saying uh, maybe a year ago, he said in one of his articles in The Australian, I think that the quintessential Australian dream is running your own business in a lifestyle location. And I thought, you've just described me. I've achieved the quintessential Australian dream. I'm self-employed and I live in this gorgeous lifestyle town and I never want to live anywhere else. And, um, yeah, and I think it's it's a trend that's just going to roll on because um, it's happening for really, really good, strong reasons. Yeah, so how do we – it's an interesting point, right? So how do you define lifestyle? Like lifestyle – so I, I, have a, I have a belief system that psychographics drive – property markets more than demographics ever will okay that is that is a that is a belief that i have uh i believe that sentiment drives intent and all of that kind of stuff and i think that the way people feel about a location is fundamentally the thing that shifts markets right and so and well and i think that and i think if you if you think about it you'll probably find that that's true because you'll see areas that will boom that have had no meaningful economic shift there won't be a, a new infrastructure project there won't be anything like that but people will feel differently. It'll have a different reason for it to be more desirable for some reason. So you've got all these real soft metrics that drive property markets, lifestyle, feeling, stuff like yeah. that. 
How do we define yeah. those? Given given that they are such domineering forces that shove markets in the, in one direction or another, how on earth can we quantify something like lifestyle? Well, you can't. That's that's the thing. This is why economists can't figure out residential property. This is why they call it wrong all the time because how they think and how they work is it's all about metrics and algorithms and and economic modelling. And you can't put those sorts of things into an economic model. And so they, they, they can't figure it out. Now, real estate essentially is about making a judgment call based on all the information that you have. That's what I do every day. It's, it's, uh, it's, to a certain degree, it's science, but it's not all science. A lot of it's just gut feel. Um, you know, how do you assess the impact for Warwick of being close to Toowoomba, well, you can't put that into an algorithm um, effectively. You make a judgment, and if you've got experience and if you're smart, most of the time you'll be right. So some of those lifestyle things, um, how do you even define lifestyle? For some people it means the beach. For me it means being up in the hills in a community where I can walk into the local butcher and get greeted by name and where um, you don't have to lock your doors and you know that your kids are safe uh, if they go and meet their friends in the evening. Um, all of those things are priceless, but you can't really put it into a formula. So, okay, so then, so then, when someone's assessing an investment location, right? So, and they're going, okay, I want to try and find an area that has lifestyle uh, as a like you know we talk about the the affordable lifestyle thing. So it's easy to find affordable because you'll be like, where's it cheap? Yeah. But how do you then compare cheap and also with lifestyle? Because because you could really you could really go wrong here. You could be yeah. like, well, oh, it's a small country town. Maybe that's what people want. You know? Nah. Look, look. What people have to understand is it's a lo- it's a long term game. And you made the the comment earlier about you can throw a dart at a map and buy anywhere, and you'd get growth in the next twelve months. Yeah, you're probably right. But that's not going to help people achieve an early retirement. What will is buying in a place that's going to give them growth in the next 12 months, but will also give them sustainable long-term growth in the next 10 or 15 years. People have to think beyond the current boom and choose their locations wisely. So you're not just going to buy in any old country town that might be having a bit of a boost at the moment. You want to buy in a place that's got um, you know, a certain um, critical mass. So I'm not going to buy in a country town as an investor. I'm going to buy in a regional centre. I'm not going to buy in, I don't know, Beverage, a small town north of Melbourne, um, which is going to be a much bigger town, incidentally, according to I was going to say that's, that that's going to be a big joint, that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be uh, projections, say, 70,000 population, where currently it's two or 3,000. But, you know, I want to buy in a Bendigo or a Ballarat because you can see why this is going to be a good place to own real estate for the for, for the rest of my life, because um, it's got critical mass and it's got diversity and strength in its economy and it's got great transport links to the capital city. So it's got ticks all the boxes and that's what you need to look at. It's also got the great lifestyle. You know, you you're going to be you're not going to be commuting ninety minutes to go to work if you live in Bendigo unless you, your job's in the centre of Melbourne, of course. But the whole point of going there is you don't do that anymore. Um, if you if you're in somewhere like Orange, you've got this great lifestyle. It's a wine district. It's a gorgeous town. It you know it's the autumn in Orange is fantastic. But it's got all these different elements to its economy. The biggest gold mine in Australia is just outside it. It's it's got manufacturing. It's got the headquarters for state government departments. All of these things give you. Um, comfort that it's going to be a sustainable long-term growth place. That's what you want to target. Okay. So, but what you've just described there is essentially economic fundamentals, right? Not lifestyle fundamentals. You basically said, oh, these are these nice places, but really what they've got is infrastructure jobs. They've got all these technical things. It's a combination of the two things. That's the ideal. Uh, How do you tap into this lifestyle trend, but sustainably for the long term? Well, you pick places that offer lifestyle, and I, I would suggest that because of the nature of the town and situation in a gorgeous wine district, that Orange is a, a wonderful lifestyle target, but it's also economically a great target. And I would say the same about places like um, Ballarat and Bendigo, about the Sunshine Coast, about Toowoomba. All of these places have got 
critical, what I call critical mass and a reason for long-term growth, but they also offer lifestyle. And, and you've also got the option of buying acreage on the, the, the periphery of these places if that's the lifestyle that you want. Yeah, so, but I would posit that what you've just pointed out is very subjective based around your own personal biases. You like wine, right? You like, you like country towns with community feel, right? Things like that. So given that it's so subjective, how, how can we apply this? Like, is it like, is it literally just a case of go there and wander around and go, geez, I could live here? Is that, is that really the process around it? No, not, not for an investment. How you feel about it personally, I don't think it's relevant at all. What you're asking the question is, is, is how do the masses feel about it? You know, that's, that's the question. It's like buying in a, a down market, um, maybe stigmatized city suburb, like, you know, buying in a black town or, or like Inala in, in Brisbane. Mm. Uh, a lot of people go, oh, I wouldn't want to live there. Well, who cares? The, what, the question is, do you know, significant sections of the population want to live there because of affordability and good infrastructure, et cetera? Et cetera? Yes, they do. That's okay. all that matters. Okay, okay, okay. But I've got to, I'm going to challenge you on this little point again, right? Because yeah. one of the one of the big uh, one of the big opportunities for investors is to identify markets that are in a phase of transition, right? And that could be a transition from being a, a an undesirable suburb with potentially a low socioeconomic profile, potentially have had uh, some issues in the past, but because of catalyst events like infrastructure stuff going on or whatever, they are transitioning and gentrifying, okay? So we could use some suburbs in Townsville for that example, right? Because you can speak to people in Townsville and they're like, no one wants to be there. That's a dive of that suburb. However, the economic credentials point out the fact that that is starting to transition. Now, so you, so how do you then posit or how do you then position this idea of like, okay, well, maybe people do want to live there when in fact, maybe it's just a dive, but it's a dive that is transforming. And, and you know, you can think about places like, you know, you mentioned Blacktown, um, uh, Sunshine, in, Sunshine in Melbourne is another example because... I used to live near there and a lot of people would be like, geez, don't get a sunshine, you'll get stabbed, stuff like that, which was obviously not 100% true, but but like that was the general sentiment. So you would argue that that is not somewhere that has, uh, and again, maybe not an exact example because that's a capital city suburb, but to take the concept, how, would you, how do you then position this idea of lifestyle and desirability with transforming or, or transformative suburbs? Yeah, I mean, that's a great element of it. I mean, the potentially, possibly, arguably the most powerful of all is the places that are transitioning because that's um, that's where you get powerful growth. And again, it's a judgment call. You can't put it into a formula, but, you know, it's, it's just observation and uh, there's so many examples of it. So what you can do is observe past examples and ask the question, okay, what other places have the, have the qualities uh, to do what's happened in these places? Um, I don't know, um, Marrickville in Sydney, for example, used to be considered very down market and now it's become very, very trendy. Um, and that's happened over a period of time. Um, you could see the evolution happening, uh, but it previously it had happened in other parts of inner, sort of inner Western Sydney, for example, places that used to be considered working class but evolved into trendy. Um, where I used to, where I lived in Brisbane before I moved up here uh, to the hills uh, was in a suburb called uh, Balimba, Balimba Balmoral, um, not far from the centre of Brisbane. Lots of big old Queenslanders on large blocks of land, but the main street was just full of empty shops. Um, the local pub was dangerous. Today, Oxford Street is the trendiest uh, eat street in all of Brisbane. It evolved, um, and it, it evolved through a transition of gentrification. It got discovered, and now all that, you know, it's a, it's a million-dollar suburb, and I wish I'd never sold what I used to own there um, with the benefit of hindsight. Um, so those sorts of transitions are very powerful for property growth, uh, but the other ones are the ones that make big economic transitions. The Sunshine Coast is probably the best example um, of that, Um it's a combination again of economy and lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Go on. Yeah. So I guess that the central theme of all this is you can't put it in a formula. There's no um, st 
um, I don't know, algorithm that can give you an answer, you've got to observe what's happening and make a judgment call. I know, you, I know you keep saying formula and algorithm because you know that that's what I'm working on, right? So I know that's why you keep saying, keep saying that. But um, but I, I'm trying to decode the the uh, the the fundamentals about about these decisions. Now, just going back to one of the things that you said earlier around, you know, why the exodus to the regions is sustainable, it's technology and all of this kind of stuff because people can work remotely, right? It's a big, it's a big factor, right? Do you, do, are you familiar with Starlink, uh, Elon Musk's digital, uh, sat- sorry, satellite internet revolution? Are you familiar with that project? I've certainly heard of it. Okay. So the premise of that is that... Um, People in the most remote regions of Australia are going to get the same speed of internet as people in the major capitals. Do you think that with expanded internet, or do you think that internet connectivity, more specifically is the question, do you think internet connectivity plays a major role in defining these uh, locations because people being so connected today to their devices and things like that? I know that Gabby and I last year, we said, look, let's hit the road for two weeks. Um, we can work remotely, we can do all that kind of stuff, but we picked where we were going based on the fact because we were doing podcasts, we had to upload, we picked where we were going based on like, okay, is it going to have good enough internet? So that was a decision, part of our decision matrix. Do you think that in the internet connectivity is actually a, a hidden driver of the trend or not? I think it's an element. It's definitely an element and um, it's one I haven't really considered, but, but, but you're right about that because if you, if you have to sum up the... Um, the trend, the exodus trend, and what's what's caused it, the one word you'd use is technology. It's the ability to work remotely that's the central factor. If, if people can't do that, they can't move to a place where the internet um, doesn't allow them to communicate with head office in Sydney or Melbourne or to do the things that want to do this. If they can't have a Zoom meeting or run a webinar, um, then they can't... Um, earn their income and run their business. So that connectivity is a very important element, um, definitely. Um, and I'm, I, I now have um, another dot point to add to my list of reasons or, or factors to be considered. It's, it's a very important one. Okay, make sure you credit me whenever you publish that, though. That would be, be great. I've got copyright goose uh, written down here. Perfect, perfect. Thank you, thank you. So what advice? Um, what advice do you have to people who are trying to make investment decisions in the current market. We've covered a lot of ground, like we've talked about why certain markets are doing certain things. But what advice um, do you have for people who are trying to make sense of this? Like if someone's got if someone's got $500,000 budget right now and they're trying to go, shit, should I buy in Sydney? Or you know, you can't buy in Sydney and Melbourne for $500,000, but you get my point is, you know, how can they make accurate investing decisions in this market? Should they just be focusing on regionals? Should they be trying to focus on, like, is there any advice that you have for someone trying to make sense of this at the moment to cut through all this noise? Oh, look, um, look, I've got to start with their objectives. I mean, far too many people decide, I'm going to invest in property, and they start looking for places to buy, and their first and only question is, where should I buy? And that's the wrong way to go about it. You know, they need to be talking to people like you and your team and understand that um, you've got to build your team before you build your portfolio. You've got to have good, trustworthy advisors in various disciplines as part of your team before you start looking for things to buy. I mean, that's really important. You've got to understand what your goals are. Then you've got to have a strategy for getting there. You know, there's multiple steps, understanding your risk profile and understanding your borrowing capacity, even before you start looking for something to buy. You've got to get all that in place. So I guess the difference, I think it's one of the questions um, on your agenda today, what distinguishes successful investors from unsuccessful ones? It's really that uh, successful ones treat it as a business and unsuccessful ones treat it as a hobby. And if you, you treat it as a business, you get serious about it. You are willing to spend time and you're willing to spend money on good advice. You build a team, then you build a portfolio. So that's the starting point. And then having 
ask yourself all these questions. You start, you get a checklist of what you're looking for. So it might be, okay, I want positive cash flow. I want a, a rental return of at least 5%. That starts to eliminate a lot of locations from your list. Um, I'm comfortable with spending 350000 That starts to eliminate. So a very big list of possibilities gets narrowed down to a short list. And then, um, okay, I'm only going to buy in a place with economic diversity. Uh, it's got to have a minimum population of maybe 30,000, whatever you, you decide. So you build a, a list of criteria and you stick to it. You don't, people get distracted by bright, shiny objects. You know, they established, they do all this work and they've got their criteria and then someone talks to them about a high-rise apartment in surface paradise and they get excited and it doesn't in any way fit their strategy or their checklist. You've got to avoid that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that, it's funny you mentioned that because um, one of my friends and clients, he got really excited because he went on holidays to the Gold Coast and a taxi driver told him that you could buy a cash flow positive property in the Gold Coast, which I think was an apartment in a high rise and all of this kind of stuff. And so he messaged me and he's like, Goose, I, I, we, I think we can get cash flow positive in, in, in the Gold Coast. I was like, like no, right, just relax, relax. So, the, you know, not rooted in fundamentals. Just on that note, though, with, and particularly um, as people are trying to make, I'm very mindful of time and, and we want to wrap this up, but it's just as a last note. How, you know, is it, do you think it's more important for people to be focusing on making sure they have got positive cash flow or trying to just chase growth? Look, I think a lot of people think you've got to make a choice between the two. And I think, hey, you can have both, you know, you can, you can have it all if you understand what you're doing and select your location wisely. You can get good capital growth and a good positive cash flow. Um, in some of the smaller capital cities and in the better regional areas. So you don't have to make a choice. Um, understand that you can have the best of both worlds with um, a uh, an intelligent selection of location and property type. Cool. I'll, well, let's leave it at that, Terry. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I love yeah. pushing, and, pushing and pulling ideas around with you, <laughs> which is always fun. Um, thanks so much. And guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, rate, review, share, do all that kind of stuff. Help get this message out to other people because there's a lot of valuable gold in here. Terry, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Always a pleasure, Goose. Let's do it again soon. Let's do that. Speak soon.